After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Baseball America College podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. We've got Joe Healy here with us again. And today we're excited. We will be joined by Michigan head coach Eric Backich, who you probably last saw in the College World Series finals where the Wolverines uh, went on a spectacular run during the NCAA tournament to reach the finals before losing in three games to Vanderbilt. Joe, we're, we're here into the middle of fall. It was a while ago that we were back in Omaha watching that Michigan team, but uh, take yourself back to Omaha in June and uh, kind of what, what stood out to you about that Michigan team that kind of, uh, I don't want to call it a Cinderella run, but it was, uh, it was a magical ride through the NCAA tournament for them. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It really kind of spiced up uh, the College Bowl series uh, this year. It was kind of a fun storyline to follow. And, uh, you know, it was a team that we had kind of picked in the preseason as a team that could do something like that. So that in and of itself, as you alluded to, wasn't out of nowhere necessarily. But the thing that I think stands out the most to me is that it was kind of the realization of um, potential for not just Michigan as a program, but the Big Ten as a league. I get asked a lot when I'm doing radio hits or, or podcasts because folks know that that I live in the Midwest right now, and, and they will ask me all the time about the Big Ten, like, okay, yeah, the Big Ten's competitive now on a national level, but what's next for this for this conference? Can it be a true power along with, you know, the SEC, ACC, Big 12, Pac-12? And I think we kind of got our answer. I mean, that doesn't make it easy. I mean, weather's always going to be a struggle. The, the geography's always going to be um, a, a challenge to to a certain degree. But I think Michigan kind of showed that, like, look, here it is. You can do it. Uh, again, that doesn't mean it's easy. You have to have the the right, you know, uh, program stuff in place and get the job done. But I think we finally got the answer to what can the Big Ten do, what's possible for the Big Ten. I mean, Michigan's just a couple plays from being national champs. I mean, I know there's more to it than that. And Vanderbilt looked, uh, you know, just like the deeper team. And then by the end of that series, they were clearly the better team. But things wouldn't have had to change a whole lot for Michigan to have won the national title when it was all said and done. Yeah, it was... Uh... This is going to be a Big Ten heavy podcast, which uh, I am definitely ready for. And I know Joe's ready for as well. We're going to talk some more Big Ten baseball 
after we we talk with with uh, Eric Backich. But it's a fun Michigan team when you uh, hear about all the stories, talking about the Kenny Chesney concert that seemed to spark their run and tightly that team had come together and when you consider the storylines along the way when you look at the three generations of the Kerr family that that had played in Omaha for Michigan with Jimmy Kerr being the most recent one uh, as the starting first baseman and cleanup hitter on this Michigan team and the way they managed their pitching staff uh, you know to, to really just ride Tommy Henry and Carl Kaufman and Jeff Criswell as much as possible and uh, how well that worked for them and the fact that they went out west and you know, won the Corvallis Regional and then knocked off UCLA, the the number one overall seed in Super Regionals, and just the whole thing was was pretty incredible when when you look at it from a uh, the just the way that Michigan had to go about this and and the way they they did go about this and and it was a it was a breakthrough for Michigan. It was something that that we'd been waiting for not just this year, but if you go back the last couple of years, you know, Michigan was kind of a trendy pick by. Uh, a lot of people, including me, for for a few years to have a kind of breakthrough season that they finally did. I don't know that anyone was, had been expecting this big of a breakthrough, but they did it, and it's going to be very fascinating to see where the 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 school and the conference uh, go from here. It was the first time a Big Ten team had been in the finals in something like fifty years, and you know just to have a Big Ten team on that stage was pretty incredible. And where I'm going with this is ahead of the class plug, head of the class, Baseball America's new college book uh, out this fall. You can pre-order at store.baseballamerica.com. And it looks at the last 40 years of college baseball. And in doing research for this book, something that we noticed around the office, obviously, is just you know the way the Big Ten slid out of the national conversation after the 80s and then this last decade it creeping back in and you know that's no great revelation to anyone that's followed the sport but it's just very interesting to watch how that happened and and when you know more about college baseball and how it functioned why it happened and everything and um the big 10 certainly now seems to be on an uptick but you know joe i mean you go from barry larkin in the 80s to nothing for a while, frankly, to now, uh, you know, in this last decade, Indiana with Kyle Schwarber and uh, everything else that's come uh, for the Big Ten. It, it's pretty incredible to think about. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the, you mentioned kind of understanding the way college baseball works and, and why that happened. And it's just a lot of teams are more committed across the country now. There's there's no such thing as, as a as a power program that's really kind of just gives lip service to baseball. Those days are kind of are kind of over. And even at the mid-major level, teams are more committed and and you know, kids have more options open to them. There's the the, the local programs from where you grow up, they still have a draw, but they are not the draw they used to be where there were a certain subset of kids that just weren't going to go anywhere but to their local the local school, whatever that was. So um, you know, the it, but it, what's funny about that is I think I'm kind of guilty of this too, kind of a perception of that there was a longer period of time when the Big Ten was, quote, down. Um, but when you really, really lay it out that way, when you go from like, let's say, Barry Larkin to 2015, when Illinois was a national seed and, um, you know, and then I think it was the first year when the Big Ten got five teams in. 
that's really not that long of a period of time in the grand scheme of things. And in, in my head, at least, and I wonder if it's the same for, for some of the listeners, but that seems like a longer gulf of time. And maybe that's just because that's when college baseball kind of came of age as a, as at least a little more of a national sport. But it is interesting to me that in my mind, it seemed like there was this, this long drought for the big 10 being a national power. And then it kind of came up out of nowhere when really it's, we're talking a couple decades max. Um, that's kind of interesting to me. It is. And I do think that's something to be said for that. You know, when you look at just how the sport grew in the nineties and into the early two thousands, that is kind of a huge growth point for the sport and the big 10 missed the boat on it. They didn't catch up uh, until the end of the, the first decade in the two thousands and it didn't really show up on the field then for another few years. Indiana making the in making it to Omaha in twenty thirteen is kind of the first sign that the Big yeah, Ten on a national yep. level is is really coming back. And you know, then that fifteen years, it's really showing that. You know, so that's what we're we're uh, we're looking at from a Big Ten perspective. Uh, we're going to get into it with Eric Backich. I, I don't want to wait any longer, Joe. Let's just get to the coach himself. Let, let's talk some Michigan baseball as we look towards 2020, but we'll also look back on 2019 and to the fall. Today on the Baseball America College podcast, we are joined by Michigan head coach Eric Backich. Coach, uh, it is my understanding that you went paintballing yesterday, and when I spoke to you before the paintballing, you were a little concerned that they might team up on you again. Did that happen this year? Huh. Well, hey, Teddy, thanks for having me. Great to be on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, we're jumping uh, right yeah, in. <laughs> we, took, <laughs> uh, we, uh, we did go paintballing uh, yesterday, and the final game that we played ended up being 35 uh, on 7. So the uh, entire team against the coaches and staff, and uh, yeah, needless to say, we are, we are shot up and sore and bruised and welted and all good stuff. Well, you're a little smaller a target than Chris Fetter. Did did he have to wear it more? Uh, yeah, he he was easy to find on the course, and uh, <laughs> yeah, they. Uh, I tried to hide behind him as much as I could. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's now been a few months since the College World Series ended. When you look back on that experience now, if you've had the time to, what what stands out the most for you about the way the 2019 season unfolded, and then then especially what happened in Omaha haven't really had a lot of time to decompress and as soon as we got back it was three days of player exit meetings and then we we had went right into our first high school camp three days later um you know so it was really just been little snippets of time to reflect but the thing that you know we talked about with our current team is how last year's team was very consistent from start to finish on and off the field. It was a group, when I think back to what they were like in the fall, you know, they, uh, they set, a, set a record for our program for GPA. It's the first time we've had a team cumulative GPA of a 3.0. We've had term GPAs that have been good, but never where we've raised the entire cumulative average to over a 3.0. Uh, I saw a statistic where teams in community service hours and just thinking about the, the just the type of type of leaders, type of guys, just, they're just a bunch of good dudes. And um, it, it seemed very fitting that they got rewarded with getting hot at the right time. So uh, I think 
course of the season callous their mind they were battle tested there was a lot of adversity along the way getting swept at at texas tech early in the year losing the dodger town classic was you know a tough extra inning game against oklahoma state in dodger stadium um you know losing the big 10 championship by a half a game for the second time in three years you know, losing a, a big series to our rival, Ohio State, you know, those are all factors that just really hardened their minds uh, and prepared them for a very magical run. They just, you know, even even going into the regional, blowing a three-run lead to Creighton in one of the two championship games, uh, that could have been demoralizing to some teams. But everything that we had done along the way you know, prepared them to get up and bounce back. So I guess the the short answer to your question is last year's team was extremely tough, um, extremely competitive, and uh, the game rewarded them for that. And they got very hot at the right time and ended up being one of the most enjoyable experiences any of us have ever had in baseball. After I want to spin it forward a little bit to the fall, um, in that you, you you lost some some big names off that team from last year: Brewer, Kaufman, Henry. And that's not to say you don't have plenty of guys come back. Chris Well, Donovan stand out. Ben Dragani coming back, uh, but you got some holes to fill. So I'm curious what kind of a fall full of you know competition looks like for your program, or is there really not a whole lot of difference between the way you would approach a fall like this versus one where you're coming back, you know, fully loaded with a group of guys who have been there before? Yeah, so. One thing that has been made very clear with this team is we're not just going to rest off last year's success and assume that we've made it or, you know, we've we've made this this jump. Um, that that's going to be telling here in the future uh, whether our program has truly moved the needle and and emerged uh, moved from a a competitive top 25 caliber program to a program that competes to go to the world series on a perennial basis. And, and the way that we can control that now is we have to think about doing everything we did last year, a little bit, even better this year. You know, we wanted to be one game better last year. We wanted to be the last team standing and uh, we fell one game short, even though it was a remarkable season. And so we have to go into this year the competitiveness, the toughness, off the field, on the field, everything that we do, um, it just has to be a little bit better. We just have to be one more better, uh, whatever that one more is, whether it's one rep or whether it's one pitch, one, one game, one day, one meeting, one whatever. And so the competition that has existed within the team has been very good. Uh, because there are some to, to win on the field, you know, with the departure of Jimmy Kerr at first base, Akeo Thomas at second, Blake Nelson at third, uh, Jordan Brewer in right, and then two weekend starters that were huge in our success, and Tommy Henry and Carl Kaufman. Those were critical pieces off last year's team. And those were guys who got better as the season went on. And that same challenge exists to players on this year's team. You know, Tommy Henry and Carl Kaufman weren't second-round picks. Jordan Brewer wasn't a third-round pick in October of last year. They became those 
types of players through the work ethic and everything that they uh, did to develop themselves. And so we've got guys that are, are doing a very nice job of of uh, this relentless ethos towards self-improvement and team improvement. And um, that that really is one of our guiding uh, principles is just having this growth mindset where we just know we're we're going into every day to get better, regardless of the the increment that we improve. It's just we that's just what we're going to do. So, like you mentioned, we do have some uh, very important pieces back with Jeff Criswell anchoring a weekend rotation up the middle. Our defense is as good as you know I think that there is uh, between the three of them and in. Joe Donovan, Jack Blomgren, and Jesse Franklin. Uh, we've got a lot of veteran leadership back in the outfield with Jordan Wogu and Chris Bullock and Dom Clemente. And then, uh, you know, you saw the emergence of a, of a guy like Riley Bertram last year who had some huge moments in the postseason when we had some guys injured. I think he's very capable and ready to uh, emerge as an everyday position player specifically in the middle of the field uh, at second base and can also play third or short if needed. Uh, And then you got some really good position battles going on um, with the corner field. And we feel really good about the emergence of some guys there. We'll we'll see how those shake out. Um, But like any team, it all all starts and finishes on the mound. And we do have some huge losses to replace over 250 innings between Carl Kaufman and Tommy Henry. You know, we know Jeff Criswell is going to be up for the challenge. Uh, and that's where, you know, a guy like Ben Dragani coming back off of injury, had a great freshman campaign where he was an All-American. So obviously expectations are high for him to return to his form or be even better. Um, and then, you know, our entire, pretty much our entire bullpen is back from last year um, with the addition of, you know, Steve Hadger, who was a highly touted, probably our highliest, our most highly touted prospect coming out of high school, who was low to mid-90s from the left side before he uh, injured himself playing pickup basketball before the season. So we're excited about his return. He's looked good so far in the early goings of the fall. Uh, but, you know, we feel really good about, about the bullpen pieces we have, you know, guys like Willie Weiss and, uh, you know, especially a a leader like Ben Kaiser, you know, Ben Kaiser, you know, he, he's, he's the type of guy that the book, the captain's class was written about, you know, may not be a superstar statistical performer, but he is very much uh, glue inside that locker room and he's back for a fifth year. And that's a huge, guy to have back considering he had 34 appearances out of the bullpen last year set a Michigan single season record for appearances so to have him back as a returning captain leader go-to guy out of the bullpen you know he was on the bottom of that dog pile the, in the super regional to go to the world series so you know yeah we did have a lot of losses but we feel great about the makeup of our team the culture that we've built we know we're protecting and defending that all the time uh, but really like the leadership within the group and look forward to see some guys emerge like tommy and carl and jordan did last year 
do you perceive any difference with given the success of, of last season, the way it ended? Do you, do you perceive any difference in how your program is viewed, whether that be something like, you know, you're maybe able to get in some front doors and recruiting that maybe wouldn't have been open to you before or something more local just with buzz around the program in a place like Ann Arbor that's, you know, usually a little more consumed with, with things like football and, and basketball. I'm curious if you kind of perceive any sort of sea change there just given what you guys accomplished. For sure. Um, you know, we talk about, you know, legacy not being statistics or accolades or personal awards or achievements, but the inspiration you have on future generations of Michigan baseball players. And so from a recruiting standpoint, um, the interest level of some very high caliber players, especially in the underclass, uh, are looking at Michigan as a realistic option now. Kids that are you know, some of the very best players in the country. Uh, from a interest standpoint, in our facilities growing, uh, as our program grows, our facility grows, you know, as we produce more professional players, um, you know, we've, we've been very fortunate. We've put 21 professional players out there just in the last three years alone. And these guys all like coming back and, and training with us um, so, you know, just as your, your program go, grows and the family gets bigger, you need a bigger house. And so, um, so our, there's a lot of, we're in deep discussions right now with our administration and donors and the excitement level has never been higher about expanding our facility and improving our indoor training facilities and having one of, uh, one of the best, uh, indoor training spaces and performance labs for rotational power athletes uh, that we possibly can in, in teaming up with um, the profession, the strength and conditioning profession to, to make sure that the services that we're providing uh, in this type of lab biomechanically are going to be absolutely state of the art. So uh, we're really excited about the growth from a facility standpoint. And then talking points from our team last year was the diversity among our roster and Vanderbilt's roster as well. And so playing this fall classic, the David Williams fall classic with Vanderbilt and partnering with the Negro league museum, continuing those discussions of promoting specifically African-American players to, to, to see that college baseball is a realistic option. And even though it's an expensive sport for equipment and the cost of travel baseball at a young age, that it can be a realistic option. And to see two teams shine on college baseball's biggest stage at the end of the year with the most diverse rosters, I think was a, a, a tremendous talking point. So the legacy of our team from last year is it very much has to do with that as well. And uh, I've been fortunate just from the world series. Uh, if we hadn't gone to the world series, we would have had the platform to continue to talk about this and speak about this, you know, something that I know coach Corbin is passionate about and I am too. Um, so, you know, there's been a, there's been a lot of momentum in a lot of different areas that can only exist when a, when a team has that type of success, because you see the storylines that come out of it that otherwise would have gone unnoticed. Yeah, that is absolutely true. And that what you're talking about with the, the diversity aspect and, and how that's continuing to be followed up on is uh, is fantastic to see and something that I think is is definitely needed around college baseball. So that conversation getting sparked the way it did in Omaha is uh, has been awesome. Um, kind of on a more macro level, from what we were just talking about, 
the Big Ten is has really been growing over the last decade. You look at Indiana breaking through Maryland with their back-to-back supers and Illinois with that fantastic season that led them to being a national seed. The conference is now getting pretty typically four or five teams in the tournament, whereas before it was a lot of times one or two. Just what what do you think the next step for the conference is now that you guys had the biggest breakthrough that we've seen from the Big Ten in a long time? And what needs to happen, from, in your opinion, to, to get it to a level of, you know, an ACC or a Pac-12 or, or any of these other conferences out there? Well, on the macro level, like you mentioned, the administrations and the institutions need to view baseball as a major sport such difficulty getting third coach approval um you know we've made we've made commitments to facilities we've hired coaches in the last seven eight years if you look at all 13 teams that play college baseball in the big 10 there's either a new coach or a new facility or a combination of the two in the last 10 years so there has been a commitment and there's no question about that and we're seeing the byproduct of that because all these coaches are recruiting better we have better facilities to recruit too you know we're winning more we're producing professional players everything is great now the college baseball still continues to grow and evolve and from a perception standpoint the big 10 has to view baseball as a major sport and right now the the struggle is is that while our coach to player ratio um is the worst among major sports. It's not the worst among all sports. You know, track and field and water polo and rowing have worse ratios than us. You know, the Big Ten has hockey. The other Power Fives pretty much don't. And so we need to continue to have the success that Indiana had in 2013, that Michigan had last year, to continue to to show that you know, we, the Big Ten as a whole, this is not an outlier type situation that we are growing to the level that where we are having success on a national stage. And even though we may fight Mother Nature, the uh, the interest that we're getting from our fan base and the uh, the exposure that our programs are getting, you know, within the media and on TV and so on, it can have a lot of value. Um, and so it, it just that's the next phase for me is just the perception that baseball in the Big Ten is a major sport. And no, it will never be on par with football or basketball for that matter. But um, it can be like what hockey is at a lot of the schools in the Big Ten. Uh, it may not average six to 8,000 fans, but we just need to do our part as coaches in the Big Ten con- to continue to improve our product and and give ourselves as m- the best chance to make these types of magical runs that we possibly can and we're, we're getting there but uh, that's the next phase uh, for the for the big 10 and then on a on a just a if you look at a deeper dive you know the some of the other conferences have way less sports mm-hmm. specifically the sec has you know, 14, 15, 20, 21 sports, you know, Michigan has 31, Ohio State has 36, you know, it's just different. It's different because there's just 
there's more teams to support and these great institutions in the big 10 are going to support everyone as best they can. So sometimes that makes it a difficult task to invest the type of money that these other conferences are in baseball. Yeah, that's definitely something that can't be overlooked. Um, you know, Ohio state, I think has the most sports they sponsored of anyone in the country. And, it uh yeah you're you're right it it absolutely does eat into it so as a big as a new Big Ten commissioner comes in it'll just be interesting to see kind of where where things go in the conference and hopefully that means good things for baseball and and he I will add is an awesome guy he uh, he called while our team was in Omaha and I got the chance to speak with him what an impressive person you know hearing his story of you know overcoming a disability at a young age and going on to play college athletics and uh, I, I think he's going to be great for uh, for the Big Ten and hopefully great for Big Ten baseball. Absolutely. Spinning this a little bit differently, this summer in conjunction with ABCA, we named Nick Schnabel assistant coach of the year. Just what has Nick uh, been able to bring to the program in that the time that he's been in, in Ann Arbor with you? Well, he's he's the reason we have the opportunity to coach and develop these great players. No off switch. You know, when you hear the phrase "tireless recruiter," I think they're talking about Nick. You know, he he's always on the phone. He he never doesn't answer the phone. Um, he he's just he's got he's got one of those those minds that you know recruiting is the first thing he's thinking about when he wakes up and the last thing he's thinking about when he goes to bed. I mean, we are so fortunate to have him. And then he's also uh, very gifted uh, with his teaching abilities when it comes to hitting and infield play and base running and just, just the overall game, team defense, team strategy. Uh, you know, I've been fortunate to that he's been one of my closest friends for over 20 years. We were teammates together at East Carolina and just to see you know, how he made himself an unbelievable player, a spark plug as a player on our team, as an undersized guy, uh, and just did all the little things uh, to be an elite player, a defensive player of the year in the conference, a professional player who made it up to to AAA, and then to watch him do all the little things as a coach and excel in coaching and recruiting and in everything that he's doing you know, to put together a historic recruiting class. Uh, the the class he put together a couple of years ago, uh, which was ranked 10th by you guys, which was set a Big Ten record. And then to see these guys lead our team to Omaha last year and then to him for him to get recognition as uh, the best amongst his peers. I just, you know, I, I know we're not going to be able to hang on to him very long. He, he's going to be an elite head coach as well. Um but he has meant so much to our program, and he, he's a huge reason why our our uh, our program has accelerated quickly. You mentioned you and Nick were teammates at East Carolina. Cliff Godwin also on that team. Out of the three of you, who is the best player? <laughs> well, uh, it depends on the weekend, but Nick for <laughs> sure. Uh, you know, Nick, Nick was uh, – you know, what he did defensively and offensively as a table setter. Um, you know, CG was a huge left-handed power hitter as well, and a team captain and a 
you know, he meant a lot to the program. To, to say he meant a lot to the program would be a massive understatement as well. But, you know, we also had Bryant Ward, the uh, recruiting coordinator uh, yeah. at, at UCLA. We're very fortunate to have the group that, that we have that all played for Coach Claire that have all gone on to college coaching. I wanted to um, ask you something a little bit, you know, a little more off the field, I guess, specific to college baseball. You gave a talk recently that piqued my interest, um, the Project Play Summit. And you, you included a personal anecdote in there about your son kind of retiring from baseball and then and unretiring. And so I'm curious if you could take us back to that a little bit. And I'm curious what, what spurred kind of that situation with your son and his retirement and then and what kind of brought him back. I'm curious if you kind of give us give us a little insight into into what they heard there. Sure. Yeah, I was very fortunate to be a part of the, uh, the Aspen Institute's Project Play, which is talking about how so many youngsters, youth players, are retiring from sports by age 11. And their campaign, which is a don't retire kid type campaign, aims to keep keep young players engaged in youth sports. And uh, one of the biggest challenges we have is this emergence of travel ball for six to 12 year olds, especially in our sport that, I mean, every sport has a travel component to it now, but you have this massive burnout factor that's associated with playing year round. And, you know, I saw that with my own kid of uh, just playing baseball year round. I just, I am so convinced that the positives of sports sampling and playing more sports far and away outweigh and create more benefits than just playing one sport year-round. You prevent the burnout. You become a better athlete. That, that, I don't think there's anyone that would disagree that playing multiple sports makes you a better athlete. You're just using different muscle groups. You're learning different, different movement patterns. And when you're a better athlete, you're a better baseball player. When you play other sports, you expand your network of friends. When you play other sports, you get coached by different coaches. And just like there's different coaching techniques, there's different coaching styles. And some other coach may help unlock the potential in a young kid that he didn't know existed that was there. And 6- to 12-year-olds, they don't know what their best sport is. That's why they need to play as many of them as they can. And to think that, you know, my son or any kid that's nine, nine years old needs to play fall and winter baseball is a crazy thought at the cost of thousands of dollars and possibly losing some of the best players within our sport because they just choose a cheaper uh, option or choose a, choose a, uh, a sport that's more enjoyable than going out there and playing baseball. So, you know, this tied in with the diversity issue because of, you know, any, any, any family, regardless of, of, of race, any, any uh, family that struggles with uh, a lower socioeconomic status can't afford the high cost of baseball equipment, of, of travel baseball, and I just think it's unnecessary at a young age. I'm not against travel baseball in high school and at the recruiting age of players. I'm against it at 6 to 12 years old. I, that's where I think it's absolutely ridiculous that kids would only play one sport and specialize in that one sport all year round uh, when they have huge opportunities and in, in windows where they can help improve their athleticism and enjoy their youth sports experience better.
One thing that, that got noted in that as well was that you mentioned that you didn't see a ton of difference in the type of instruction that was being done in, in, in the rec league versus in, in travel ball at that age. Did, did that su- surprise you at all as someone who's in the game yourself? That, did that surprise you to a certain degree? Well, I mean, you know, the, at that age, I mean, you're going to have kids that that uh, struggle fundamentally. But at tra- the travel ball, here's the thing. Travel ball at 6 to 12 are dads that are coaching. Rec league at 6 to 12 are dads that are coaching. Some of the dads have college or professional experience in both travel leagues and in rec ball leagues. It just depends on the families of where they want their, what they want their kids to do. I'm not against travel ball. If, if, if the travel league at a young age means you play in some local weekend tournaments and you're calling yourself travel ball, that's different than the travel league that is going and spending money in different cities and staying in hotel rooms when they're nine and 10 years old and they're requiring the kids to play and practice in the fall and in the winter and do all their, uh, you know, their training to where the kids aren't able to play other sports. That's what I'm against. I'm not against going and playing a weekend tournament in baseball season. Hell in baseball season, it doesn't matter. You know, go and play however you want to play in baseball season. My, uh, my my position against travel ball is when it requires these kids to have to play year round and the high cost that's associated with it that drives other kids out of baseball because they can't afford it. That's where I think we're missing the boat with travel baseball. I'm not against playing as much baseball as you want to play during baseball season. And that's what I tell every youth camper, just play baseball during baseball season. If you want to be a better athlete, if you want to improve your baseball skills, go play soccer, go play basketball, go play football, go play hockey, go do something else other than play baseball in the fall and winter. Well, we've covered all kinds of ground here today, and um, I just have one more question for you. Last last year, uh, some of the, some of the the players you coach believed that the the run was spur- sparked by a, a Kenny Chesney concert that they attended and you missed. Uh, because of some family commitments. What is your favorite Kenny Chesney song, though? Oh, man. Um, yeah, my my son was my, my uh, the same kid with my, my oldest son that uh, was playing travel ball. He, he made his first Holy Communion last year. And so uh, we were finishing the season against the University of Nebraska in Lincoln, and then the Big Ten tournament started a few days later. So I had to leave to go to his first holy communion and our uh, you know you've heard the phrase when the cat's away the mic will play <laughs> and uh and so our players uh found out that um kenny's tour was going through lincoln and uh and yeah they all went to that concert and you know i got back and they all got you know kenny chesney hats and shirts and you know uh no shoes nation all kinds of and so uh, it, it turned out to be just this, uh, you know, this big rally, rallying cry of, you know, motivation and, and positive energy. Every time a song came on in the Big Ten tournament that was a Kenny Chesney song, they just, you know, they just all of a sudden the, the mood and the, everything, you know, was, was raised and uplifted. And uh, they, they, they swear that 
in the Big Ten tournament before Jordan Wogu hit that walk-off winner in the ninth inning against Illinois that they played a, a Kenny Chesney song just before the you know we came up to bat that inning. And um and that sparked the rally and so we ended up uh we ended up listening to a lot of Kenny Chesney in the month of June. <laughs> uh and Kenny was nice enough to send us a video message wishing our team good luck in the World Series. Uh he sent us uh hats from his recent tour. Um uh, just a an awesome awesome human being someone that you know my wife and i have gone to see him in concert many times over the years and i love all of his music i don't know if i could pick one song i could listen to you know i've got no shoes radio programmed in on my uh one of my radio presets but uh i saw that he's got a tour coming out next summer and one of the stops is ford field so we're we are working on a uh, a team 153 reunion and uh, another concert, uh, August, I think it's August 15th, 2020. And uh, try to try to get the whole team back together to go see the Kenny Chesney concert at Ford Field in Detroit. So uh, we are all lifelong Kenny Chesney fans now. And every time a Kenny Chesney song comes on the radio, I know it's, yeah, we turn it up. That is that is outstanding. And I hope that reunion, uh, you guys are able to pull that off because that would, that would be a lot of fun for everyone, I'm sure. Yeah, the Chillaxification Tour coming out in 2020. <laughs> well, Coach, we really appreciate you taking the time today. We we know we took a lot of it, and it was it was awesome to talk with you about all this stuff. Uh, just like I said, we covered a lot of ground, but it was it was fascinating uh, all, all the time to to hear your thoughts, uh, uh, ranging from from your team to some of these broader issues in, in college baseball. So we want to thank you for joining us on the Baseball America College Podcast. No, Teddy, anytime. I appreciate you having me. Thanks again. Well, we thank Coach Backage again for joining us, Joe. That was, uh, it was wide ranging. Um, I, uh, I definitely learned stuff. Uh, you know, that there was, I, I, I always love talking with him. He, he has so many interesting things to say and you can go all these different ways, you know, when, when you're talking with, uh, with Coach Backage, he's very happy to, to entertain anything from, from his team to some of the more macro issues in the sport, for which I, I very much appreciate that. Uh, but, Joe, what, from what you heard, what, uh, what kind of was your takeaway, I guess, specifically for Michigan in 2020, but also on some of these bigger stuff? Yeah, well, first of all, we really let him off the hook by letting him say he couldn't pick a song. Pick a song, Backage. Get off the <laughs> fence. No, I joke. I joke. Um, no, I mean, it was a, just a really interesting guy, uh, speaks, you know, uh, really well and, and well-informed on a lot of different topics. It's kind of the coach you really like to have on podcasts like this, where you can really touch on a lot of stuff. Specific to Michigan, I, you know, I was struck by, you know, when he was just kind of going through the roster they have back. And, you know, I guess I it, it's another one of those teams where I've kind of made the mistake of, of seeing some of the big, bold names that are coming off the roster, the, the guys that I mentioned in that question, you know, Brewer and and, and Henry and Kaufman to say nothing of, um, you know, Jimmy Kerr and, and he, Blake Nelson, guys like that. Um, and kind of taking that as, okay, they're going to do some retooling. But then he starts to get into it and talks about how strong they are up the middle. And, uh, you know, Jeff Criswell back plus Ben Dragani, um, not to mention some of these highly recruited guys that they had that were kind of blocked last year. Um, so it's, it, to me, it, it kind of struck me just how much of this, team is, is going to be in position to do some big things again in 2020. And, and we know that the big 10 is a, 
just a fight uh, every single year. We we see it year after year. There will be, I guarantee you, a podcast episode some point in like mid-April where we go, boy, I don't know what to make about the Big Ten. It's just so clustered. I mean, we do this every year, and that's what makes that league fun. Uh, but certainly this is a Michigan team that's going to be right back there in 2020. I, I don't really have any doubts about that. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why I picked this team to go to Omaha in my eight for Omaha back in at the end of June. And, uh, you know, I, I think when I did that, I'm sure it raised some eyebrows, you know, because everyone saw Henry and Kaufman leaving the team and Jordan Brewer, you know, the leading hitter. So, I mean, these are some big pieces leaving the team. But I love Jack Blomgren at shortstop. You have your catcher back in Joe Donovan. I love Jesse Franklin in the outfield. Uh, you know, Criswell was a USA guy this summer. Like, Dragani's coming back, and we cannot forget how good he was as a freshman. And if he can get back to that after the surgery, I, that's a great piece to have. Same with Steve Hajar, who uh, you know we didn't get to see because of the injury yet, but is a big-time talent. So I just really like this team going forward. Uh, and, and you know you can tell that that he does as well. And, and Michigan is just getting started on their fall, which is a little different for a northern program. We didn't get into that, but they're going to be going later because they don't play Vanderbilt until November 10th. So they have uh, a, a little bit of a later fall than you would expect for a Midwestern program. So some of these things are just kind of starting to work through themselves uh, in terms of who's going to replace some of these guys, like a Jimmy Kerr and a Blake Nelson. But I have full confidence that the talent is on the roster. Like he mentioned, that class two years ago, three years ago now, whatever, was the number 10 ranked class in the country, best for a Big Ten team ever. Those guys are now juniors. You know, So when we're talking about Blomgren and Criswell and Nwogu and you know all of those guys, those guys are now juniors. Those guys are now leading this charge. And it's going to be very interesting to see what they do now that they're upperclassmen and that some of these other guys that were program leaders like Kerr and K.O. Thomas, those guys are now gone. And this junior class now has to step up and really take the reins. They were a big part of the engine that drove this, this Michigan team to the finals last year. But now it's going to be even on them or on them even more so. Something very interesting to watch going forward with the Wolverines. But there is a lot of talent coming back. And, and I'm very excited to see where Michigan goes, not only this year, but into the future, like we were talking about, how the program capitalizes on a finals appearance and moves forward. You mentioned the uh, the fall being a little bit later for a team, in, uh, particularly in the upper Midwest. And, you know, I think if we'd ask him about that, I think there would be an element of, sure, maybe this, the fall schedule kind of dictated that with the game against Vanderbilt later in the fall. But I think there would also be an element of, like, this is kind of our time of year. Like, this is when we, you know, we get an opportunity to be out in the less than ideal weather because that's our reality. I, you know, I remember, uh, you know, talking to a Michigan writer for their student newspaper a couple of years ago, and, and it was during the preseason. So we're talking January, early February. And, you know, I made a joke with him about like, well, you're, you're probably not getting a lot of practice. They're probably not getting a lot of practice done today because there had been a snow up in that part of the country overnight. And he's like, what are you talking about? They're out there now. Like this is just, you know, with backage, it's, you know, hey, if we can get on the field and it's not a dangerous situation or if we don't have, a you know, two or three feet piled up on the field, we're going to get out there and practice. And so I think there's a certain element of that's just who this what this program is. And they kind of relish the fact that, yeah, the weather 
you had a, he, he mentioned it in the interview that you know we're always going to be playing against mother nature but i think to a certain degree they kind of embrace that and just say this is our reality and we're going to make the best of it and we're not going to let that be an excuse and perhaps doing their fall in you know mid to late october into early november when it's going to be pretty chilly out in ann arbor is just part of that it's absolutely true you know having talked with them that staff a little bit about this you know the the weather you get in September in Ann Arbor and the rest of the Midwest, frankly, you know, is not the weather you see at the start of the baseball season, even if you're on the road for the first several weeks like they are. The weather you get in October is. So there is definitely an element of that, I think. And, you know, I'm endlessly fascinated by how coaches set up their fall because there's so many different ways to do it. But if they are doing this in part, because of the weather situation i mean it makes all the sense in the world to me you know if you're going to play in it you got to practice in it and you know so what's the sense in, in holding practice when it's 80 degrees out and sunny if that's not going to be your reality later you know of course you do get that weather at the end of the season but you got to get there first so it, it's gonna be interesting to see how vanderbilt or how vanderbilt and, and michigan set this all up um going into that that game in November, uh, and then where those two programs go for there, because those two programs who, of course, played in the finals are playing this fall and are then going to open the season against each other in the MLB4 tournament out in Arizona. And I, you know, that, that it's those are two teams uh, under Backage and Corbin that had not played each other, and now they're playing each other an awful lot in the span of uh, like eight months or so. So going to be very interesting to see how that sets up, and then, you know, who knows, maybe we'll, we'll see them matched up again in the postseason in 2020. Well, Joe, we've talked a lot about Michigan here, uh, you know, after having heard from, from Coach Eric Backage, and of course, the Wolverines are coming into this season as the Pretty clear-cut favorites, I feel like. After what happened last year, they return a lot of talent. But the Big Ten is often very, very competitive. You were, we're talking about decided by just a, a half game or a game. Usually comes down to the, to the final weekend. And so let's talk about some of the other contenders in the conference this spring. You've had the chance to see a couple teams that are pretty consistently in the top half of the league already this fall in Indiana and Illinois. What stood out to you about the Illini and the Hoosiers as they enter or as they, as they start working towards the 2020 season? Yeah, I think they're, they're two teams that probably won't be a part of the discussion we have about the teams that are going to challenge Michigan at the top, but they're both teams, I think, that have pretty high floors as well. And one thing that struck me about the two teams, just seeing them in back-to-back weekends is how similar they are, not necessarily in terms of roster construction, but in terms of where they are in their program build. They, I mean, they both had really veteran teams last year that reached heights they hadn't reached in a while. You know, Illinois had a veteran club, much of which was recruited in the immediate aftermath of that record-setting 2015 team for Illinois. And so they came in with pretty high expectations of what they could accomplish at Illinois, and they really hadn't got there. It had been you know, a little bit disappointing. I mean, they they had a down 2017, and then in 2018, the Brent Spillane team comes pretty close. And then last year, they, they finally get there and make good on that promise. And Indiana was in a similar boat, a pretty veteran team last year that won a Big Ten title, which was something, for as much success as Chris Limonis had in the role, was something they hadn't done under Limonis. So that was kind of uh, you know, reaching a height that hadn't been reached uh, for this core either. So now they both go into years where, in 2020, I don't think either are complete teardowns, uh, but they certainly have 
significant questions. I guess I'll put it that way. With, you know, with with Illinois, I like some of the cornerstone pieces they have, particularly on the pitching staff. You know, Ty Weber's a senior who's you know thrown about a million innings for the Illini. He's not going to blow you away with stuff or put up huge strikeout numbers. Uh, but he's going to get you deep into ball games. He's going to compete. I have, you know, I'm very confident he's going to take the ball 16 times and put up an ERA in the threes and throw, you know, 100 innings and be really solid for him. You know, they also got Garrett Acton back on the back end, and I don't think that was something that they probably expected. Probably it wasn't something I expected when when Acton in the first half of the year was uh, one of the best closers in college baseball. He tailed off a little in the second half, and, and now he's back. Um, so those are two really good pieces there. Um, I also like Ryan Schmidt, senior reliever for him. He's thrown about 100 innings in relief throughout his career. So um, there's some some good pieces on the pitching staff, and I think the question is going to be, you know, they, they played a 12-inning scrimmage against Indiana State when I saw them, and of the 12 innings, I think maybe eight or so were manned by guys who were new to the program. And so that's going to be the question is, who fills in some of these these bit roles you know, in the rotation around Weber and in the bullpen around Schmidt and Acton? you know, who holds those roles down. I think what ultimately is going to determine the Illini ceiling is going to be what is that sophomore class that came in as freshmen last year? What do they ultimately end up being this season? So I'm talking about a guy like Aiden Maldonado, where the stuff is absolutely undeniable. The talent is undeniable. But what is his role? And, and I've not had this specific conversation with Dan Hartlib, but it, it's a situation where, you know, if you're telling me he's going to start, and, you know, he's going to be able to get you five, six innings and it's high end stuff like we saw from him at times. Like, OK, I think that raises their ceiling. Not to say he can't be valuable in a bullpen role, but I think ultimately an arm like that, you'd want as many innings as you can get out of it. Brandon Comia last year was kind of blocked by Troiki and Massey. Uh, this year he's going to get a crack at being the starting shortstop. Does he become like a bona fide superstar, you know, in the Big Ten? Jacob Campbell was was blocked by Jeff Cordy primarily last year at the catcher position. You know, can he be a guy that catches, you know, uh, 55 games or uh, 50, 55 games, probably on the high end there. But, you know, the point being, is he a guy that can that can handle a full time role um, behind the plate? I think those are the things that are going to, like I said, kind of determine the the ceiling for the Illini. There's, you know, there are some some other guys in the, in the mix, I think, that'll be a part of that. I mean, is Kellen Sarver a middle of the order bat? You know, he had a, quietly had a really nice year last year. You know, does he take another step? Ryan Cut missed all of last year with injury. Probably would have been a big part of that pitching staff last year. What does he look like back and healthy? Um, Nathan Lavender is a guy who went to the Cape for a little bit. Uh, big time arm, tough to hit, struggled with command. What does he look like this season? Um, so those are the kind of some of the questions that I think are going to determine what we're going to see there. Uh, Indiana is interesting in that on the pitching staff they have even more questions. Entire starting rotation is gone. Uh, Matt Lloyd gone from the back end. And we saw a couple guys in, in Gabe Bierman and Tommy Summer pitch two innings in the scrimmage last weekend uh, that I think are going to get cracks of the rotation. Both of them kind of struggled, uh, gave up a couple runs, although that is going to have like 0.0% bearing on whether or not they're in the rotation. It's just the <laughs> fall. But um, just worth noting, a couple different looks for those guys. Um, you know, Connor Manis is a, is a relief arm that's back who was really good for them last year. So it's going to be all about what they get from them, from those pitchers on the staff uh, filling in those holes. Offensively, they've got a good core back. Drew Ashley, Grant Richardson, Cole Barr is back, Elijah Dunham is back. Um, but, you know, no Matt Lloyd, no Matt Gorski, no Scotty Bradley, no Ryan Feynman. And so the key for, for Indiana for me is there were a lot of strikeouts again on Saturday, and I know it's just the fall, and, you know, we got a long way to go. 
And I'm not really one to panic too much about the strikeouts. I mean, you may remember the 2019 Hoosiers struck out a lot too, and there was a lot of hand-wringing. And they won the Big Ten title, and they ended up scoring a, a lot of runs, and they showcased a lot of power, and it worked out okay. So that in and of itself doesn't bother me. The question I have, though, is this is an offense without a senior in Matt Lloyd, a senior in, in Ryan Feynman, you know, in, in uh, a lead hitter like Matt Gorski, and then a, a steady veteran in Scotty Bradley. Those guys were all able to kind of bail the offense out. Uh, you know, if they were having a, a 13, 14 strikeout game, uh, those were guys that could really change the complexion of a ball game uh, with one swing or with one really quality at bat. Without those guys there, even if the guys who take over those roles have instant impacts, are they going to be able to help bail out that offense if, if they have the type of game where the, the hits just are not stringing together and there's a lot of swings and misses? And I'm not so sure. The answer is, it might be yes. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly willing to admit that that could be the case. Um, but it's the question I have coming into the season. I mean, they've got the questions on the pitching staff, uh, but offensively, you know, you can see a scenario where this kind of feast or famine offense in 2019, which was more feast than famine in 2020, ends up being a little more famine than they would like. Yeah, those are, Indiana especially, just going to be very interesting uh, as as more, as it becomes more Jeff Mercer's program. You know, obviously it takes a little while to turn things over as a coach and as, as he gets his guys, not, not that they need to turn over the Hoosiers lineup, obviously, but like just as that naturally happens through, through natural attrition of, of these guys moving on, I, I'm just going to be very interested to see what that becomes. And this year's obviously going to be a, a bit of a transition with, with all the departures you're talking about, but there is absolutely talent in Bloomington. So we talked about with the Hoosiers, the, the regular season champ, well, Ohio State, won the tournament uh, on a, after a bit of a uh, Cinderella run. And they have a couple big pieces to replace. We're talking about outfielder Dominic Canzone and Andrew Magno, who was the hero of the Big Ten tournament coming out of the bullpen and really throwing that pitching staff, which was good. But he really carried a lot of the load through, through that team on his back a little bit there in Omaha to, to get Ohio State back to regionals. But they also return some big-time talents. You know, Seth Lonsway is back in the rotation, and he's coming off of a, a tough summer on the Cape. But you know, that's a guy that was a, a freshman All-American last year as a redshirt after striking out 126 batters in 92 innings. Garrett Burnhead is back in the rotation as well. They've got some other uh, intriguing arms there on that pitching staff, and then I think pretty much everything offensively starts with Dylan Dingler behind the plate. Um, he's not, he hasn't hit for the kind of power that the Canzone showed, but you know, I, he's just such an important piece of that puzzle that, you know, it, it, with, with Canzone and Brady Cherry, who is their second leading hitter with those guys, both moving on now, a lot's going to fall on Dingler. And if this team is going to do it, I think it's going to be a lot on the pitching staff. You know, I, there's talent there, and anytime you're running out Lonsway and, and Garrett Burnham, I, I think that those are that's going to be one of the better one-two combinations in the Big Ten. It's not the best necessarily. I think we'll get to the best in a second, but you know, it's certainly up there. And then, speaking of big-time pitching combinations, you have to look at Minnesota, which has the best arm in the conference in Max Meyer, and Max Meyer, you know, is a guy that that that's played for. USA's collegiate team the last couple of years, uh, you know, just electric no matter how the Gophers use him. 
as a freshman, that meant closing last year, started in the bullpen, moved to the rotation, wound up, you know, being outstanding there as well. We're talking about a first round arm. He's, uh, he's the best pitcher in the conference, the best prospect in the conference. And so with him going, Minnesota is going to have a chance any weekend and, you know, we'll see how much he hits this year. He, uh, he got 121 at bats last year. I know they really like him as a hitter. I, I'll just be very curious to see how much uh, how much he gets run out there in, in the lineup this year. And, and then for Minnesota, I think it's a lot about finding that guy behind him because two years ago when they made that run to Super Regionals, uh, it was Meyer and Patrick Fredrickson as both were, were freshman All-Americans. And Fredrickson kind of took a step back a year ago, and it'll be interesting to see if he can find it. Sam Thorison has been good at times. He had a pretty good summer on the Cape. Maybe he can figure it out. I don't know if if Minnesota can find another arm behind Meyer. I you know there there is some turnover offensively. Um, catcher Eli Wilson was their leading hitter last year, and he's moved on. But they uh, they have some good pieces there. They really develop players well up in Minnesota. So I think that it's going to be better. I, I expected more than 29 and 27 last year. They really got behind the eight ball because of an impossible schedule, basically. That was due in large part to the fact that their winter home, U.S. Bank Stadium, was also hosting the men's basketball Final Four. And for reasons that remain unclear to me, the NCAA needs their Final Four venues basically to be clear for like a month in advance to get them ready. Uh, so that meant that, that Minnesota had to be on the road for the, uh, the, the first six, seven weeks of the season. They played a, a very, very ambitious schedule. And that meant that they, you know, really, that they, they were unable to, to compile a, an at-large worthy resume and then fell a little bit short in the Big Ten. But they're not going to stay down for long. I mean, they went 15 and nine in the big 10. This is, this is a really good program and I expect them to bounce back. And the other team we're kind of looking, will they bounce back is Maryland. Of course, it wasn't that long ago. Maryland was kind of the, the big 10 darling with back-to-back super regionals uh, appearances under John chef. They've been a little down from that over the last few years, but uh, they brought in the big 10's best recruiting class this year. I ranked it number 20 in the country. Yes, number 20. Uh, it's got some very exciting talent coming in. And then Sean Burke, a right-hander, got there last year, redshirted because of injury. He's now healthy. There are a lot of people, both inside and outside the program, that are very excited, very interested in seeing what he looks like on the mound. And so while he's not technically in this recruiting class, he is another impact talent that they're adding uh, because, of course, he wasn't available to them last year. So if someone like a Randy Bednar, who came in a few years ago with a lot of hype around him and is now a junior, if he can like kind of have that breakout season, I think there are pieces for Maryland to be competitive. I don't know that this is a, a, a team that, that is ready necessarily to challenge Michigan at the top. Illinois and Indiana, you were saying, Joe, but I, I think this is a team that has the ability uh, to compete in the Big Ten at a higher level than they have the last couple of years. 
Yeah, I would. I think the answer for me on who competes, if, if you're making me choose now, I mean, I like Ohio State. You mentioned them right off the top. I just think that rotation where you, you talk about Lonsway and Burhan, and, and Griffin Smith was really kind of a nice arm for them as well. Um, you know, I think that's something that, in terms of the steadiness of that rotation, you know what you're going to get. I mean, Minnesota might have a higher ceiling in terms of the rotation if Fredrickson is the Fredrickson of two years ago. But barring that, I mean, I think that's you can kind of set your watch to that rotation in a way that you can't with a lot of the rest of the Big Ten. So I think that's where my mind goes. Um, but I'll put a little note in here for Iowa. And, you know, <laughs> Iowa does this funny thing every year where they end up being like one standard deviation better than you think they should be every year. And so they have this thing every year where they every season they compete more than you think they should. And they're right in the mix for a regional and they get there, they just miss, whatever it is. And then at the end of the year, they lose two-thirds of their rotation and four of their best hitters and two or three good bullpen arms. And at the end of the year, you go, oh, I always got a lot to replace. How are they going to compete? And the next year, you turn around, and they've hit on like every single Juco recruit. And they have a couple impact freshmen, and the guys they have coming back are better. And they compete again. And it's they've been kind of – that's a double-edged sword, though, because they keep kind of doing that, but they also end up losing guys every year. And so – I think this might be the year where that's kind of stopped, though, and it kind of pays yeah, off. They return a lot of talent. They absolutely do. I mean, last year was a team, and, and my observation, and talking to guys who cover the team a little more closely than I do, that the local guys, I mean, there was a thought that last year's team really probably had no business being as close as they were to a regional. Now, they, they tailed off towards the end, and maybe we just kind of saw that the UC Irvine series win where I they were kind enough to play their best baseball while I was there. Uh, that was probably the, the the climax of the season, and, and they really just kind of tailed off um, after that. So maybe that was more of their true talent level. But, um, you know, this year they do return just, just about everybody. I mean, they've got some – Cole McDonald in the rotation is, is a pretty big loss. And, you know, Chris Whalen, uh, you know, Tanner Wietrich, those guys are gone. But just about everybody else is back. And if so, you know, if we assume a certain level of competitiveness from Iowa in years when they have a whole bunch of questions – this year, with much, much fewer questions, um, you know, I certainly have a lot of confidence in a Rick Heller-led team uh, competing at the top of the Big Ten when they've got a lot of certainty on their roster. I like the Ohio State call. I said a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about mid-majors just how important it is to get postseason experience and then come back with that, like, bring that core back, and then they know what they have to do to get there and what it's like when they get there, and... Ohio State went to Nashville last year for regionals. They saw what what it was like, you know, playing Vanderbilt, the eventual national champion. So I do like that. I'm a little concerned about the offense, but the, at the same time, the offense was young last year uh, in, in large part. So if they can get guys to take steps forward, I think the the rotation was, it surprised me how good it was last year. And, and you're right to mention Griffin Smith coming back. They, the, they returned three guys that you know, basically carried the load for them in the rotation. Wandsway was a tick down this summer, and that has me slightly concerned, but not that concerned. That's a guy that threw 92 innings for Ohio State after not having played the year before. Um, so if he was tired this summer, you know that's understandable. So if they get him at peak form, you know that's day one pick Seth Wandsway, and then. Burnhead and Smith filling in behind him uh, and, and some of these other arms taking a step forward. I, I think that that's a team that absolutely, you know, is competing uh, for an at-large berth or, or a Big Ten title. I, I, I definitely think that that can be true. 
And it would be super exciting if it was Ohio State-Michigan. I mean, I love college rivalries. And if that's what it was this year in the Big Ten, that would be that would be really cool. I guess my inclination is a little bit to look at Minnesota and see the best arm in the conference and just trust that this program that has been the most consistent over the last five years in the Big Ten uh, has another run in them. And you know, so I, I guess I'm kind of torn between those two as the, the team that, that's most ready to challenge Michigan. I feel like Minnesota's upside is significant here that if anyone is really going to scare the the Wolverines that it might be a Minnesota but at the same time again if Lonsway's right he's not that far behind Meyer so you know I I I think that Minnesota Michigan Ohio State these are definitely the three teams uh, that we really are looking at in the Big Ten I like Iowa as a dark horse and then I'm intrigued. We've got some new coaches in this league. Uh, Nebraska most prominently with Darren Erstad leaving and Will Bolt coming back to his alma mater and Purdue with Mark Wasikowski going to Oregon and Greg Goff getting promoted. Joe, I mean, just uh, on those, uh, and of course at Rutgers, Steve Owens comes in from Bryant. I mean, of those three, obviously Nebraska's at an entirely different stage of program development than Rutgers and Purdue, but do, do you see any of them uh, any of those three coaches making a, a first-year impact? Yeah, I think. Well, I think Will Bold at Nebraska is in a position to do so because they, they do return a lot offensively, and that was a good freshman class last year, highlighted by Spencer Schwellenbach, obviously. And so I think offensively they're going to be ready to compete from day one. I, I have questions about their their pitching staff and rotation specifically. They did a really good job with, you know, kind of a rotation going into last year that I was a little unsure about. I remember kind of you know, saying to people like, I'm not really sure what to expect with Nebraska's rotation. That ended up being something they could really set their watch to all year. They did a great job there. So now it's a little bit more of a question. So we're kind of going in with a similar, uh, wondering a similar thing about the Cornhuskers. So I think, I think they'll, they'll be in a position to compete, um, kind of in the middle of that pack. I think they'll be in the mix for an at large bid. I think they will be a team that's in the big 10 tournament looking to make a little bit of noise. Purdue is one to, I like, Purdue is one to watch as well. Maybe, you know, just to get back into the Big Ten tournament. I don't know that they're ready to compete at the top again, but it's worth noting that, you know, Wazikowski has moved on, but A, Greg Goff takes over. He was on the staff with Wazikowski, so you do have that continuity there. Also, Purdue is recruiting at a pretty high level, um, and so they're going to at least get the, the fruits of that labor uh, this season and, and while this class kind of moves through. Now, they lost a couple guys to the draft. Um, you know, it's my understanding there was, you know, you know, there was a guy or two that maybe they expected, maybe one or, you know, one guy they didn't expect. There was a kind of a mixed bag there, but they did, um, they did lose some guys both to the draft and there were a couple of decommitments following that, but it's a, it's a better class maybe than what they have been used to pulling in in, and West Lafayette. Yeah. Thank you. So yeah, you, you may be able to speak to that better than I, but, but yeah, so I mean, they're, they're pulling in talent that Purdue maybe hadn't normally seen and and maybe was getting a little used to with Wazikowski. So I, you know, last year they finished next to last in the big 10. I would be very surprised if that's the case again in, uh, in 2020, one team to watch that that is not among the new coaches, but you know, I've heard it from a, a couple of scouts that I've talked to so far this fall that, you know, look for Northwestern to be a program that kind of pushes to get back. They nearly got into the Big Ten tournament this last year, just missed uh, getting into that, that you know, tiebreaker, which, you know, I can't remember what all the tiebreakers were going into the last year. I don't know that anyone really could, but they were pretty darn close, moral of the story. 
Um, Spencer Allen's done a really nice job there. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to find the pitching, you know, at these programs that you have things working against you. Obviously Northwestern has the academics and the cost of attendance and, you know, the geography, uh, being what it is, um, that's kind of hard to get the pitching to allow you to compete at a place like that, but he's done a good job finding offensive pieces. And, and I've heard that they've got some arms there that should be impact arms. So I think Northwestern's a program that I think is certainly trending upward. Now what their ceiling is kind of remains to be seen. That's a, maybe a conversation for a different day. Um, but I think that's an upwardly mobile program worth watching. Yeah, I definitely have been kind of waiting for the Spencer Allen breakthrough at Northwestern. It's an exceedingly difficult place to win, obviously. But he's really good at this recruiting stuff. You know, he was a big part of why Purdue was as, as successful as they were uh, at the start of this decade. And so I, I've been waiting to see it. And, and I think that, yeah, I mean, last year was a, a very nice step in the right direction. And I'll be very interested to see if they're able to continue to build on that momentum I, I like what the Wildcats have generally. The Big Ten, again, only has eight teams that make its tournament. So it's not an easy thing to do when, when we talk about just missing the tournament. You know, it's a 13 team league that only takes eight teams to Omaha. So it's not easy to do, or as not as easy it is, as it is in, in an ACC or an SEC where 12 of 14 teams are going. So. Uh, if Northwestern is able to make that breakthrough, that would be uh, a significant step for the Wildcats and, and for Spencer Allen. So I, the moral of the story, Joe, though, is, as always, the Big Ten going to be very interesting, very competitive top to bottom, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we <laughs> there's enough interesting storylines here that, you know, when you asked me about the new coaches and we talked about some of those programs that, you know, we kind of glossed over. You know, Steve Owens going to Rutgers, and, and the thing about it is, is if, if, if anybody feels equipped to kind of get Rutgers to a point, again, another program that has some things working against it, notably facilities at this point in time, if there's any, anybody who can kind of get that moving in the right direction, it seems like Steve Owens is on that short list. So you know there's a lot going on in this conference when, you know, the highly successful coach at Bryant, who got took that program basically from the ground up into regionals immediately, uh, is the new head coach at Rutgers, and that wasn't even really on the front of our minds to talk about. And if uh, anyone at Rutgers is listening, I'm still waiting for my finder's fee. Uh, see my tweet uh, as soon as that job opens, suggesting that you hire Steve Owens. Uh, once that happened, I, I feel I am entitled to, to some sort of commission. So, Oh, that, that commission actually, was that meant for you? That actually, <laughs> I, I already cashed that. It's too late. I'm sorry. I didn't know that was meant for you. Ah, uh, yes. And that was, it was a great hire. You know, he's, uh, he's one of the most successful coaches in the Northeast. And that is probably, well, it's one of the two most difficult jobs in the Big Ten, probably. And if anyone's able to turn it around, I, you know, I, I have faith that he would be one of the guys that could do it. So it'll be interesting to watch that develop over the next few years. It is definitely not a plug and play situation. That's a developmental situation. But we'll we'll see what what Steve Owens is able to do there because he has won absolutely everywhere he's gone. Whether we're talking about Bryant or Lemoyne or any of the other places on his resume, he's uh, he's won and and won pretty big at least uh, in relation to to his surroundings. So we loaded you up there uh, with Big Ten talk today. Um, I love it. I know Joe loves it. I hope you love it too. Uh, and if you do, please subscribe to the Baseball America College podcast. Uh, we're on all of your favorite podcasting apps, be it Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Baseball America app itself, which you can download uh, both for 
Android, and Apple. So you can make sure that you are subscribed to the podcast wherever you're listening to podcasts so you get the latest episodes. And if you can, uh, rate and review us. We very much appreciate that as well. You can find Joe on Twitter at JoeHealyBA. I am at Ted Cahill. Uh, let us know there if you have any questions, any, uh, any thoughts on the Big Ten contenders in, in 2020. I almost said 2019. We're on to 2020. So you can check us out there as well. And also, I have to remind you again that you can pre-order Head of the Class, Baseball America's new college baseball book, baseballamerica.com. It is a look back at the last 40 years of college baseball, taking you all the way through you know, the best, the best teams, the best players, the best coaches. If you're listening to a baseball, college baseball podcast this deep uh, and, and this, this far into the offseason, I think you'll very much enjoy the book. So again, you can, it is available for pre-order, baseballamerica.com. Joe and I will be back next week with another edition of the Baseball America podcast. We want to thank Eric Backage for joining us today, and we want to thank you for listening. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.